good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Felicity and Nathan and Brianna, for sharing a piece of your story with us. That was beautiful. I can confirm that Pastor Dave is being hit with snowballs this morning. He texted me yesterday and said, thanks a lot, Ashley. I've been hit with a lot of snowballs. So that is actually happening. So I'm Pastor Ashley, as Bethany mentioned, and this is week three of our marriage and relationship series entitled Ever After. And this morning, I have the privilege of preaching on the topic of contentment, which is not something that I was really excited to talk about. Um, I knew that my singleness would come up, and so when I saw my name on the schedule to talk about this after actually requesting this topic, which is the great irony in it, um, I thought there are 80,000 other things that I'd rather be doing today. Um, As popular singer Lizzo says, I put the sing in single, yes, I am single and I am proud of it, but I get tired of talking about my singleness. So to say that I had a bad attitude when it came to this is an understatement. In fact, I remember telling Pastor Dave, I said, you know, if I didn't work here, I would skip the next six Sundays, for real. (laughs) You've heard one marriage and relationship series, you heard them all, I don't need to hear any more. No, thank you. So when reflecting on why I was having such a bad attitude about this, I was so fussy. When it came to this sermon series, I realized that it wasn't because I was discontent or that I didn't like my singleness or that I had some kind of deep animosity or jealousy towards married people. Um, It was just because I didn't want my singleness to be the focal point of this message, to be made to feel as if I were less than because I was single. Far too often, single people, particularly single women, have been made to feel that singleness is a disorder in need of a cure, rather than something to be honored, a gift that was given to be stewarded by God. I didn't want any part of this series to make any one of us, myself included, to feel like I wasn't meant to be used by God because I was single, or as if I was incomplete because I wasn't married. And I have to say that I'm overjoyed and encouraged by not what I've just heard so far through this series, but by being a part of the Cedar Mill family. It's been so encouraging from what I've heard so far, and I love that Pastor Dave and Bethany and Paul have spent so much time really fleshing out what it means to be married, and they've given us God's perspective on singleness and marriage, and they've put both of those things in a place of honor. So thank you guys so much. This morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time parsing out the differences between issues that married people have or issues that single people have or vice versa, because there's one central issue that I believe that both of us face, and that's discontentment, being dissatisfied with our current relationships or relational status, whether we're married, engaged, single, have a struggling friendship, in an open relationship, I don't know what that is, don't do that, that sounds like a bad idea. (laughs) Whether we're single or married, we constantly find ourselves hungering for more, 
seeking after the next new person or thing to meet our unrealistic, exaggerated, and misguided relational expectations. Our discontentment has become one of our biggest barriers to having and nurturing healthy relationships with our friends, relatives, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, whatever. One of my favorite singers is Lauren Hill. Have you guys heard of her? Okay, she was very popular in the 90s. She's a rapper, singer, actress, and some of you would probably recognize her from the movie Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, one of the best movies ever. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Anyway, Lauren Hill is also famous for this quote, fantasy is what people want, but reality is what they need. I'll say that again. Fantasy is what people want, but reality is what they need. When I was a little girl, I used to want to be Whitney Houston. I used to think I could sing like Whitney Houston. I cannot sing like Whitney Houston, and that's why I'm not on the worship team. <laughs> Seriously, it, it was really bad. After seeing her How Will I Know music video, some of you might remember that, she had the big blonde hair and the glittery, sparkly dress, and she was dancing around. I thought, that is what I want to do. Instead of being a pastor, I want to be Whitney Houston. So because I wanted to be like Whitney Houston, I had my parents go out and buy me a microphone, a real microphone, and a real amp. I may have been a little spoiled, but that's for another day. A real microphone and a real amp, and they did. And then I asked my uncle to build me a mic stand, and he took a cinder block and somehow a curtain rod and made these two things work together and turned them into a mic stand. And I would dance and sing in front of the mirror for hours, thinking that I was Whitney Houston. I lived in an elaborate and, for my parents, somewhat expensive fantasy world. A lot of us are still living in fantasy worlds, particularly when it comes to our marriages, our friendships, and our dating relationships. Our fantasies, when left unchecked, erode our contentment. And at times, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of being discontent. So I'm not just standing up here preaching to you all this morning. I'm preaching to myself. It's only by God's grace and intentionality that in this very moment, I am content in my singleness and my childlessness. I'm going to keep it real with you all this morning. I long for a family of my own, a husband to serve alongside, someone with which I can cry, laugh, and experience the hardships of this world with. And if I'm keeping it really real, someone that I can be intimate with. This longing, this hunger, while God-given has led me to a lot of heartache and, quite frankly, a lot of really bad dates. Because I was striving, striving to fill a hunger that only God could fulfill. No man or woman can ever fill the longing within you. Only God can do that. Cease striving and trust God with those feelings and desires. And if you're single, spare yourself from a, a lot of really bad dates. It's just not worth it. Single friends, here's the deal. If you're sitting across from a table 
with someone and you realize I'd rather be at home watching Netflix by myself than be in the same room with this person. That is not the person for you. <laughs> it's not going to work out. If your date takes you go-karting and then leaves you sitting at a table eating M&Ms while he is go-karting and you're just watching him, he's not the one for you, ladies. <laughs> that actually happened to me. That's a real story. We can talk about that later. As an aside, fellas, women don't want to watch you go-kart or play video games. That's, that's not fun for us. We actually like to participate in things with you. We want to have a good time with you. So if that's your idea of a first date, don't expect a second date, okay? I'm just putting it out there. Seriously, dating is hard, but I'm, gonna, I'm getting way off topic. This morning's passage is a familiar one. It comes from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. So turn with me to Philippians 4, 4 through 13. So here's the context of this passage. The church at Philippi was the first Jesus community that Paul started in Eastern Europe. It was a Roman colony, a Roman colony in the ancient Macedonia full of retired soldiers. And it was well known for its patriotic nationalism, which Paul spoke out against very fervently with the message that Jesus Christ was the one true king. So it wasn't a wonder that he eventually would be thrown in prison for this because this was very anti to what was going on in that day. So Paul wrote the book of Philippians from a prison. And Paul just wasn't in prison. He was like in deep. He was on death row. I mean, he was going to be executed, and it wasn't a matter of if, it was when. Yet despite his bleak circumstances, the overall theme of Philippians is super positive. In fact, scholars say that Paul's letter to Philippi may have been his happiest, most positive, and personal of all his letters. So let's dive in. Rejoice. Somebody say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. As I prepared for this sermon, I read over Philippians again and again and again and again. God kept bringing this one question to mind. And that question is, how do we learn 
contentment. The way Paul is using the word contentment here conveys the meaning of self-sufficiency. And now for most of us, upon hearing that, we're like, wait, self-sufficiency? Like, that's the opposite of what God tells us to be. But Paul was doing this intentionally. He wanted us to realize that just as we can choose to be self-sufficient, as Christians, we could choose to be content. And we can choose to be content in our tough circumstances because we need to recognize that because of the indwelling presence of Christ, his Holy Spirit, that we already have everything we need within us already to be content in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Paul's exhortation towards contentment is not an excuse for complacency or some trite admonishment or plea to ignore our feelings, but it's an exhortation that encourages us to move beyond our feelings and to actively choose an attitude of joy and contentment, a state of being that is not determined on circumstances. Friends, this involves intentional effort on our parts to retrain our thoughts, taking every thought captive so that it aligns with Jesus Christ. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 10.5. And I'm going to read it from the message. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth, the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Learning contentment involves us being willing to stay engaged in our relationships, even when the circumstances of those relationships get a little or a lot messy. Spiritual and relational progress requires steadfastness of spirit and mind, and this is a choice. Now, I want to take a pause and give two disclaimers. First, I know that for some of us who battle anxiety and depression, and other forms of mental illness, that contentment at times isn't a choice. And I have in the past and still do at times struggle with anxiety. I took medication for it for years, so I know that the struggle is real, and I don't want to dismiss that. But what I do want you to know is that God is gracious, and he is good, and he can provide contentment even in the midst of those situations as well. Secondly, staying engaged in the process requires that we be connected to each other. It's called a relationship for a reason, right? It takes more than just one person in a relationship putting in the hard work to make that work. Both people must participate fully. After all, you cannot have a relationship with someone who doesn't want to have a relationship with you. None of us can make someone commit to us if they just won't do it. Whether you're married or single, striving to have a relationship with someone who is not putting in the work to have a relationship with you will only lead to heartache. Married friends, I do want to take a moment just to talk to you. At some point, some of you might need to ask yourself, am I willing to put in the work in my relationship? And if the answer is no, then you need to go to the Lord and his word and ask him to help you discern why, because it might be a really great reason why. 
The point is, is that God gives us instruction through coming to him, through seeking his wisdom through his word. He gives us the answers to everything with we, that we need. We can't treat these really big decisions flippantly because the sanctity of your marriage depends on it. If you answer yes, still go to the Lord. You want to make it work, still go to the Lord. But this time, ask him how. Seek his word and his heart for wisdom. It might be that you need to pursue confession, like Bethany and Paul talked about last week, forgiveness or reconciliation. But whatever you do, don't let your pride or bitterness stand in the way of what God is trying to do. He may have something else in mind. And remember that what may have worked with someone else's marriage may not work for you. Your situation may need a different approach. But the only method that is consistent all the way through is going to scripture and the Lord in prayer for counsel. So in those deep places of heartache, grief, mental fatigue, and really tough questions, how do we learn contentment? When we look closely at Philippians 4, 4 through 13, we can see three clear pathways that usher in contentment. One, praising God for who he is and what he has done. Two, feeding our hunger with the things of God, not the things of this world. And three, practicing surrender. And I'm going to go through each of these things. First, praising God for who he is and what he's done. Some of you may be familiar with Corey Ten Boom. Have you heard of her? I thought so. She um, was a great missionary, and she was also a Holocaust survivor. Corey and her sister Betsy, during World War II, were put in a concentration camp. And during that time, they endured unimaginable horrors. There was one particular situation where they were transferred from one dormitory to the next. Not sure of the reason, but they were moved. And so the dormitory that they were moved to, it was infested with fleas. So much so that the German guards didn't even want to go in there because they were afraid that they were going to get bitten. Can you imagine that? Their situation was already a nightmare, and it just escalated 1,000%. Corey and her sister decided that instead of complaining about their circumstance, they would begin praising God for their experience and treating it as an opportunity to love one another well and to also love the people around them well. This resulted in being able to have contentment in the bleakest of circumstances. Their ability to praise God in this situation no doubt had a positive impact on them and the community around them. Through them, Christ's love was on full display. Through praise, even in the middle of our toughest circumstances, God gives us his perspective, increasing our peace and our contentment while providing strength to endure any and all things. I mentioned earlier that Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is described by, the, by scholars as the most joy-filled letter. In fact, Paul uses the word rejoice over and over again. In 4.4, Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He wants to emphasize that rejoicing is a declarative stance we must take in every 
circumstance. And this declarative stance to rejoice, this choice, always will transform our attitudes and ultimately our very state of being. And we see this reflected in the lives of Corey and Betsy. We see this reflected in the life of the Apostle Paul. And we see this reflected in the life of Jesus. Practicing praise is a catalyst for contentment. Psalm 126, 3 through 6 reads, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This psalm was sung by a group of people who were in the middle of heartache and drought. They knew pain. And here they are singing about God's faithfulness and the hope that they had in him. We must never forget to be a people who rejoice always. The second way we learn contentment is by feeding our hunger with things of God and not the things of this world. Psalm 27, 7 says, One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. I want everyone to close your eyes for a moment. Think about your favorite meal. Can you see it? Do you have the smell and the taste in your mind? Okay, open your eyes. After having your favorite meal, it's likely you are satisfied. We're no longer hungry. I know for me, I don't even want to think about eating anything else after having my favorite meal because I don't want anything to get in there and mess up the flavors that have just taken place in my face. I just, I don't want anything to mess that up. But when we're hungry and not eating the very thing that we're craving, the thing that is meant to satisfy that hunger, we just keep eating and eating and eating. And we even eat things that we may not like or don't even want. Another illustration for this is for those of us that have food allergies, we know that if we make that choice to eat that gluten-filled bread or that lactose-filled milk, that it's not a matter of if we get sick, it's when. Trying to satisfy our heavenly hunger with things that we know will make us sick will only keep us sick and hungry. And this is true for our relationships. C.S. Lewis puts it in this way, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We've actually been created to hunger and crave heavenly things. Revelation 7:16 makes this clear. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. True contentment comes from heavenly things, not earthly ones, friends. The problem is that whether we're single or married, most of us are running around trying to satisfy our hunger, that heavenly craving that we have, with all the wrong things. Just because it looks good on the outside and tastes good for a moment doesn't mean it won't wreck us internally. For example, that affair you've been having, that addiction you've been hiding, 
that anger you've been suppressing will no doubt end up affecting your marriages, your friendships, and ultimately your relationship with Jesus. Looking for fulfillment through impulsive gratification of the flesh will not, and hear me when I say this, bring you the wholeness and satisfaction that you're longing for. It might bring you temporary happiness, but not satisfaction, and certainly not contentment. Only a renewed perspective through your relationship with Jesus can do that. Friends, we must regularly check our hunger by asking ourselves these questions. Is this hunger from God or my own fleshly appetite? What am I hungering after? Are the ways I plan to satisfy my hunger honoring to God and the people he's placed in my life, my family, my friends, my community, etc.? When our hunger goes unchecked, it's so easy for us to start mistaking what's bitter for what's sweet. Instead, we must at all times do what Paul says in verse 4-8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Noble, admirable, lovely, excellent, true. In other words, the things of God are the things that we should be hungering for, seeking after, and intentionally contemplating on a regular basis. Third, and lastly, and this is the harder one, practicing surrender. We're coming off of several really big holidays, and the holidays have a way of increasing our hunger for not only heavenly things, but for the things of this world. Between Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, most of us have experienced a flood of emotion. From joy to frustration to sadness and anger, the list goes on. For some of us, we were able to spend time with family and friends sharing food, games, and laughter. And for others of us, we were left with the memories of what used to be or the distant hope of what could be. For me, a single woman who has never been married and yet longs to have kids and a husband, a woman who doesn't know her biological family and at one time, her biological father, and at one time had a strained, a strained relationship with her mother, and lives across the, the country from her family, the holidays can be a stark reminder of just how single, how alone I really am. Another reminder of unanswered prayers, disappointments, and unfulfilled desires centering around the things that I long for but do not have. I'm sure some of you may have felt the same way. The holidays and other moments where we find ourselves being reminded of what we don't have can serve as landmarks that point us back to our need to surrender so that we can partake in true contentment, the kind of contentment that can only be met by faith in Jesus. I've been wrestling with this paradox between surrendering and being content because as uncomfortable as it is, I believe that Jesus asks us, me, to frequently practice surrender. 
and contentment and surrender go together in God's kingdom reality. And his reality isn't based on fantasy, but the truth that he is the great provider of our every need, and in him we lack nothing. In God's eyes, surrender isn't just waving a white flag and saying, I'm done. Surrender is a full body effort that requires us to trust God wholeheartedly with everything, and I do mean everything. Let's go back to Philippians 4, 11 and 12, where Paul writes, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content, and in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Again, we can't forget the context in which Paul is writing this. He was in prison facing death, and he was willing to surrender completely. Ultimately, he had made peace with the idea of surrendering his life. And it's with this posture that Paul speaks of being content. That's mind-blowing to me. I can almost get a picture of Paul sitting in a dark, damp jail cell with a smile on his face because of the relationship that he had with his Savior. But before Paul, there were two people that modeled the complexities of contentment and surrender. And those two people were Abraham and Sarah. God told them that they would be the father and mother of a multitude of nations. Abraham and Sarah both had a longing for family. Sarah, a longing to be a mother. Abraham, a father, to have a biological heir. They both wanted assurance of safety, provision, redemption, and expansion. And God promised to do this, to give them what they desired. God made a covenant with them. And we know what a covenant is because Pastor Dave talked about that two weeks ago. It's an eternal agreement made in the confines of a relationship. God, through his relationship with Abraham and Sarah, made a covenant. In Genesis 17, 19, God promised that he would establish the covenant that he made with them through Isaac, meaning great blessing, family, and kingdom expansion would come through Isaac. This was the way that God was choosing to do this. So when God said to Abraham, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering, it was a crazy request. It would seem illogical to any rational mind, a blatant contradiction to what God had told them. However, ultimately what God was asking them to do by surrendering Isaac was to surrender both what was and what was to be. Every dream, desire, fantasy, for the sake of being con content in God and God alone. Not resting our hopes in anything other than him to fulfill us. Here's what I know, church. God is asking some of us to surrender some things for the sake of contentment this morning. So what's your Isaac? He may be asking you to call off the engagement, to stay in that marriage, to be content in your singleness, 
to forgive a loved one, to surrender whatever that what if is that is keeping your hope displaced. Know that your surrender won't be in vain. Be assured that contentment will come because it's dependent on who Jesus is. Surrender will always be hard, but if we've experienced and digested the faithfulness of God, we have the ability to be content in any and every situation. Contentment is not the absence of longing, but it's having a holy perspective that keeps us centered on Jesus while walking in the midst of the now and the not yet. Before I come to a close and we enter into a time of communion, I want to highlight Philippians 4.13, and we've heard this time and time again. A lot of us have probably even quoted this passage to our friends and our family. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Friends, I want to remind you that you can't fight for your marriage or reconcile those friendships without Christ's strength. And you can't have contentment through that process without praising God for the hope you have in him, for the abundant life that he has so graciously given you. Your contentment or lack thereof has everything to do with what you do or don't believe about Jesus. Have you allowed fantasy and worldly appetites erode your faith? The kind of faith that we see modeled in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Paul and first and foremost Jesus? Our thirst, that great thirst and hunger of our hearts can never be filled by anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water I give will never thirst again. He is our living water. And with him, contentment can be a part of our ever after. As you come to the table Please take time to sit with God and to allow him to minister to the longing and the hunger of your hearts. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much, Father, for who you are. That you loved us so much that you died on a cross for us. And that you rose from the grave to give us new life to give us new power, and it's in that power that we live and breathe and have our being and that we have the power to choose contentment because of who you are. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for my friends. I pray that each one would be able to recognize just how much they are loved by you, that you are their good shepherd, and in them, in you, they lack nothing. Amen.